0: Hello, my name is Zahar Karetsky, and this is the Transitions Visions podcast, a podcast series about and for the sustainability transitions community. Today we will talk with Phil Johnstone about war, transitions and sustainability. And Phil is senior researcher at SPRU in the UK, which is part of the University of Sussex and is, of course, a core institute for contemporary transition studies. Phil has recently co-authored a number of papers on war and transitions where he argues for opening up the black box of war and the military for analysis in the context of transitions. So we will talk about world wars, local conflicts such as the current ones in Ukraine and Gaza, we will talk about deep transitions and what it all means for transitions theory and practice. So war can be a very sensitive topic, especially now, in the autumn of 2023, but we try to leave our emotions outside and focus on transitions theory. So enjoy this episode and stay tuned for more transitions visions in the future. Hi, Phil. We're, we're now with Phil Johnstone, a uh, senior researcher at uh, Spru in uh, Sussex. Hi, hi, Phil. Hi. Glad <laughs> to be here. Yeah. yeah. Now, I got uh, intrigued by your recent paper on, uh, well, actually, a, a series of papers on war and transitions. It's an interesting, uh, very kind of topical if you are now in 2023. Um, so, but maybe first, as a general, the general opening. what got you even interested in the topic of war and transitions?
1: Well, it's a good question, um, and I, I've realised actually, when, when I think about it myself, that it perhaps goes back further than I recognise. I think when I got my first postdoc, it was on a project called discontinuation in Technological Systems, um, Peter Stegmaier was the PI, and I was working with Andy Sterling. We were doing a case study on discontinuing nuclear power, and we're looking at Germany and the UK. And we found it very interesting, basically, that uh, Germany was phasing out nuclear power and the UK wasn't. And the puzzle was that the German nuclear industry is far better performing than... Uh, the UK has a far better renewables resource and essentially a really badly performing nuclear industry. So it didn't make much sense why the UK was so persistent with this technology. And what we found through our research is that the military uh, and the UK's commitments to military nuclear power uh, are a key driver uh, of civil nuclear power because through civil nuclear power, you sustain supply chains and skills and resources that are necessary for the UK to have military nuclear things so essentially civil nuclear subsidizes military nuclear so I got interested in that and then the Deep Transitions History Project came along and with Johan Scott uh, and Lara Kanga and they were looking for someone to look specifically at the role of world wars in past transitions um, and so I, I began doing that but uh, an additional thing sorry this is a it's a very long answer but I realized that there's always been an interest there because actually, my views of politics in the world, I think, were very much shaped at an early age, imprinted, if you will, by the experience of the Iraq war in the UK. And it was a very early lesson for me that there's a sort of area of policy that often democracy does not necessarily reach. And we protested against the war, millions of people young people went on strike left school uh, and and went to protest and still the war went ahead so i suppose that that was a kind of early influence on me wanting to understand this sort of murky world of military affairs i
0: suppose mm. Yeah, I want to ask you more about that a bit later but you mm-hmm. mentioned deep transitions already so and of course yeah. you're a big part of that uh, theoretically as well you write a lot on this um, yeah. so so and one of the papers that you wrote uh, you know that sudden sort of the, the shock sudden large scale shocks such as wars um, are not given enough attention in transitions theory and Uh, So could we have a little bit uh, of a discussion about deep transitions first? What is exactly a deep transition?
1: Yeah, sure. A deep transition is different to normal transitions, I think, in two clear ways. And one is about time and one is about multiple systems. So the deep transitions approach looks at change over very long periods of time. Um, the late 18th century and the birth of industrial modernity, essentially. And it combines the multi-level perspective with Carlotta Perez's focus on great surges of development, which are these long waves of economic development. And the Deep Transitions posits that this these long histories uh, are the consequence of the building up of rules in single systems that then spreads to multiple systems. And over time, a shared direction occurs where multiple systems are guided in a similar direction. So a, a key rule is uh, an imperative to use fossil fuels, for example, that um, originated it, and then it kind of came to dominate food, mobility, energy, of course. And the deep transitions pays attention to this very long-term change. And unlike Carlotta Perez, who, who focuses on discontinuities between surges, the deep transitions emphasizes continuity across this very long time period. So there's the two differences. It's looking at a longer time period that transitions usually looks at and it looks at
0: multiple rather than single systems. And the transition is towards something.
1: Ah uh, yes. So the first there's the first deep transition was the culmination of industrial modernity. It was um this society that where we had this greatly expanding wealth, uh, but it came with consequences uh, because it was dependent on fossil fuels, environmentally destructive practices. And now we are perhaps uh, at the beginnings of a second deep transition, which is really a transition that's guided by uh, principles of sustainability that fundamentally challenge some of the unsustainable practices that built up in the first deep transition but of course this is you know a point of of debate at the moment i think we're there's a number of different directionalities that are going on vis-a-vis digitalization the lingering influence of the fossil fuel regime but perhaps also this emerging second deep transition to
0: sustainability Mm -hmm. yeah and so there's the the transition towards sustainability is that a surge or is that a another a second deep transition well this the idea
1: is that this would be a fundamental rupture in industrial modernity so it is something that is is setting a new course over the very long term but sticking to the theory it will be probably based on surges as well so the idea is that we might be in the the first or second surge of a second deep transition uh to sustainability
0: yeah i guess there's a lot of kind of um rhyme in in deep transitions theory with uh uh, other historical approaches such as uh, the marx uh, approach but it's kind of a more uh, yeah more relevant uh, turn i guess the deep transitions has would you agree
1: yeah uh, compared to kind of um, conventional kind of long histories, you mean, no? Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the unique contribution of the deep transition is, you know, there's been accounts, for example, uh, Marxian accounts that have f- focused on economic revolutions. Uh, you have sort of social accounts focused on democracy or the Enlightenment or, or these kind of, there's different vantage points to look at these long histories, but the deep transition takes us, socio-technical approach specifically so that's its unique uh, contribution and it's focused on the interaction always between society and technology as the key focus and this focus on socio-technical systems as the unit of analysis uh, as the building blocks of of the analysis be it energy food mobility and all these kind of things so uh, I think yes it has a lot in common with other historical accounts but it's also got this unique contribution because of the socio-technical perspective, and as such, it's a, a useful contribution, I think, to sustainability transitions.
0: And is sustainability? How I'm wondering what uh, the empirical sort of underpinning of uh, that the, the the sustainability will actually be uh, the next uh, uh, deep transition. I'm thinking of multiplicity of papers recently came out about. How unsustainable actually transitions can be. Mm. Yes.
1: Um that's a really interesting paper. And it makes an excellent point. And actually, we can look at current trends in digitalization, I think, is a really good example. So, and that's I've been working on recently. So there's an incredible amount of hype around. Digital technologies are going to save resources, they're going to uh, make supply chains more efficient, and they're going to help with the renewable transition and all the rest of it. But actually, what we've seen in the fifth surge uh, since 1970s, uh, dominated by these digital technologies, is yes, okay, things have been made more efficient, but we've had massive rebound effects where um, the energy use is is increasing in terms of the servers and all the infrastructure surrounding computing. Uh, we've seen this linear production model still dominating. You, you can only look at mobile phones and that whole business model, you know, every two years get a new phone kind of thing. Um, so uh, uh, we can see the huge uh, impact of rare earth metals and the sort of continuation of colonial kind of north-south relations in terms of resources being extracted and the environmental consequences of these to go into all these lovely shiny digital devices. So, um, that's a good example of something I think, which is arguably contributing towards unsustainability. However, we do see, um, Great progress in terms of the electricity system in, in particular, so the acceleration of renewables, new rules emerging in the electricity situation around flexibility, demand response, these kind of things. Um, and we do see, going back to digitalization again, you know, there's very interesting discussions around um the principles of sufficiency as an alternative pathway to understanding and moving towards digitalization rather than efficiency as a priority. So yes, at the moment, we are on a kind of, uh, we're at a quite worrying um, trajectory in many ways, but there's these, uh, there are positive signs and sort of accelerating niche developments that point towards maybe something else uh, building up.
0: You already mentioned that you are a part of the Deep Transitions Lab, uh, or at least working with the researchers there. Um, mm. So, and coming back to your collaboration on war, so yeah. uh, so war is important in deep transitions. Yes. War is an exogenous event. So, what is kind of the importance, uh, whether theoretical or applied? Or well, applied, I guess we we know, but the theoretical.
1: Well, what we've done in the history project of the deep transitions was to look at the first and second world war, which of course are the biggest wars to have ever occurred in 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 terms of the uh, number of uh, casualties. With the second world war. Um, but the scale of it, in terms of the number of countries and everything like that, so we must remember they are quite exceptional. However, often when wars have been mentioned in, and they're not mentioned often in sustainability transitions, uh, is that's changing. There, you know, the, the um, you know, there are there is more discussion of it. However, at the time, they're mentioned as a kind of thing that interrupts a certain. Pathway. So there's this. Uh, let, let's take an example. The, the energy system is is going along. Then suddenly there's a first world war, and then after the war, uh, the trajectory has changed somewhat. But there was no discussion, I found, of well, what was actually happening inside that period of wartime. So we began to look at this, and and a uh, proposition was. Uh, of the Deep Transitions framework was that the wars, uh, they don't just uh, speed up something, but they fundamentally uh, change uh, or influence a particular socio-technical trajectory. And what we did was we examined, me and Katrina McLeish, who's now working in the foreign office in the UK, we um, looked at three systems, food, energy, and mobility, and the First and Second World War, and examined... Uh, how th- how they changed these systems, essentially, based on the rules and how the rules changed. Now, what we found was that the current theories weren't really adequate to grasp the significance of the wars. So we took on an alternative approach, which is this theory of imprinting, uh, socio-technical imprinting. Now, it's a bit different to the usual theories like path dependency and lock-in, because those theories look at historical change in terms of a sequence of events. So it's something happening, then another thing happens, then another thing happens along a timeline. Imprinting places more attention on the conditions of an exceptional sensitive time period. And what this means is that there's so-called different environmental conditions to a certain time period, which influence uh, focal entity in this t- in this case energy food and mobility so we looked at what was different about wartime to peacetime and we used literature um uh, from history to examine the mechanisms of total war because uh, these two war- world wars were total wars in the sense that the entire society was mobilized not just militaries and to cut a long story short uh, these wars fundamentally changed the nature of the socio-technical systems uh in terms of uh, we saw increasing centralization and in, in, increasing intervention from policymakers, a rapid uh, shifts to oil um all kinds of things happening uh and rather than receding after the war had ended in the sec- after the second world war these new set of institutional conditions actually continued to form uh, a new kind of institutional arrangement that would go on to influence these socio-technical systems. So the key point that we were making was really that the war was not just an interruption. It fundamentally stamped onto the nature of socio-technical systems and continued to influence them long after the war period was
0: finished. Yeah i wonder now if there are other events such as this that that's uh, yeah also imprint, uh leave, leave an imprint on, on things on the order
1: well absolutely you... and this is so, this is something that would be good to mm. and we make this point in the paper let's research this you know and mm. there's a framework now we, we identify certain mechanisms and we identify the way that imprinting works and It's just a case of examining other things. I mean, we did do a working paper on the COVID-19 pandemic because it's a really good example of this idea of imprinting, of there being a different set of environmental conditions. Because let's take the electricity system. Uh, So before the COVID-19 lockdowns, uh, we were still... uh, People, engineers and so on, who are managing electricity grids and so on, uh, their main problem is uh, you know, maintaining supply and these kind of things and, and making sure there's enough electricity. Suddenly, over, almost overnight, we're locked down. And in the UK, anyway, we saw this incredible drop in um, electricity use. And suddenly, the envi- environment was different. The problem they were dealing with was uh, a lack of demand. And actually, at renewables... Um, Within that set of circumstances, fared a lot better, and we saw oil struggling, nuclear struggling, and everything like that, because those technologies require um, high demand um, uh, to to operate, uh, particularly nuclear. Um, so that's an example. You know, the 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 environment was suddenly different. Things that were not possible were suddenly possible. So you could uh, cycle around the city. You could do all these kind of things. Um, so the key question is, of course did uh something imprint after the covid-19 pandemic and it doesn't look good when you look at it in terms of the usual things we look at, at in sustainability because unfortunately car use really did bounce back um heavily and uh there was uh you know an uptick again in in fossil fuel use but i often wonder you know the the sort of psychological aspects of the lockdowns perhaps there may be some imprinting there in terms of the shared experience people had i mean a lot of people reconsidered their uh, their lives really a lot of people changed jobs a lot of people there was the great resignation it was a it was a sensitive period where i think a lot of people had time to reflect on their lives and in some ways particularly in relation to the world of work uh, there may be something there of significance that has lasted um following the covid-19 pandemic
0: yeah. Yeah. In terms of imprinting, it was interesting to observe how the, a large like a narrative was to return to normal. So that's the opposite of imprinting, perhaps.
1: Yeah. 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 <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. That. That. That was. That was very much the the call. It was you know back to normal. But I. Th- I. You know. I, I. I don't think there's. You know I don't think many people would say. Things are, you know, the world has fundamentally changed. There's a number of reasons for that. It is a poly crisis. And, you know, there's been the inflation and the war and everything like that. But I often think, you know, this is just anecdotal, but I often think about it just um, in relation to what happened with digital finance during COVID. So that was rapidly accelerated because you had this thing, you know, no contact. So money became very unfashionable, certainly in the UK. And... Very rapidly, we've suddenly got a society where it's actually difficult to pay in hard cash in many places. And I don't think that would have happened in the same way uh, without the pandemic.
0: Yeah, or or teaching online, a lot of courses are still, well, there's a a larger uh, share of uh, online learning than before, I would say, at least in the middle. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Same here. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, there's a, you mentioned that the, so the, one of the results of the Second World War was the uh, ramping incumbency of fossil fuels. Was that it? Uh, yes. Uh, one of the results. And it's interesting in terms of... Uh, is there a kind of, um, again, a rhyme or a dichotomy between the this, the, the next uh, projected surge uh, in, the, in the deep transitions theory, which is to go uh, away from fossil fuels? Is that something... Uh, What would you think about that, that there's a kind of a mirroring or focus on fossil fuels?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I guess the the point is that the the Second World War in particular, it laid the foundations for the oil society. And I, I like that phrase, and it's one that I believe I picked up from the book, The Shock of the Anthropocene which is an excellent book that just has a chapter on war and unsustainability, basically, as a massively overlooked fa- factor in the creation of, of this thing we call the Anthropocene. Without the Second World War, the ma- mass network pipelines, shipping, uh, logistics network spanning the globe, all these kind of things would not have been built at the rate that they were built. So by the end of the Second World War, you suddenly had the infrastructure required to, uh, have a global oil regime and because it was the uh, American state a, a lot of it spending was prepared to spend this money because of the wartime situation so it really accelerated us towards this uh, age of oil and indeed part of the challenge of the second deep transition is essentially dealing with the legacy of what you could call this wo- World War II regime which is the, these global networks uh, are totally dependent on oil military is totally dependent on oil so you know a huge challenge is going to be uh what do you do uh, about these vast military networks that really are dependent on oil and um you know there's a there's great work done on trying to account for the carbon emissions of military, which is very difficult to do but scientists for global responsibility and other people are doing this and as a single institution i think the us military is the the, uh, the as an institution uh, you know one of the biggest co2 emitters in the world you know far greater than many countries combined and so on so that's a very that's almost a form of deep incumbency if you will really that uh, you have these uh, strategic um, military assets around the world very dependent on fossil fuels and as we try and move towards a second deep transition these are going to be very uh, challenging things to discuss and uh, uh, and figure out,
0: really. Yeah. Well, that's, that's an interesting fact about the, the U.S. military. Interesting. Uh, okay, coming back to the world wars. Uh, yes. I think you mentioned uh, somewhere in the papers that there's a difference between the imprints or the effects of those two wars, the world wars, yes um, could you did you explore why or could you I'll talk about why there was a difference yes so what we
1: noticed really was that the mechanisms of total war were the same so the first world war we saw the same things you, you have demand pressures Uh, You have uh, directionality, you have enhanced policy capacities and shared sacrifice as sort of four mechanisms that make it fundamentally different to peacetime. And in the First World War, we saw things like the the British Navy transitioning to oil. It was one of the first to do so. We saw oil become for the first time a strategic asset of military significance because the Allies – uh, as they were called, realized that um, without access to oil and without maintaining that access of oil produced from the United States to Europe, they would have lost. Um, so um, that was something that was amplified. We saw a tendency towards centralized electricity grids. So um, because industrial production um, needed to increase to produce armaments and, sudden, uh, and these kind of things, engineers had to find a solution to maintaining electricity supply and the solution was to interconnect local grids so before grids had kind of been local and disparate and then you saw this interconnection process and so again the trend towards uh, centralization um we saw things like um the uh highways act in the united states so a big lesson was that they could not they were Get the trucks to the coastline as quickly as they would like. Bottlenecks built up and so on because the roads weren't good enough. So after the First World War, they said we need to build highways. And so the military was a key reason for that. The experiences of the First World War. But what happened was that over time, the imprints kind of they 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 did they lasted for a few years and there was policies, but they kind of receded, uh, and it we we returned to the kind of the market uh laissez faire kind of approach in the, in the 20s in many of these countries and uh that that changed somewhat when we had the in the USA anyway with the the uh, the great depression and so on um but it was almost like there was a return to normal then the second world war it was a much bigger event everything took place on a much greater uh scale the the mobilizing forces were were far larger so it was almost like the event itself had a much bigger effect on the socio-technical systems um and it and also i think the existential threats that emerged in the second world war and the sheer scale of the tragedy and the uh number of people that died it created this resounding experience across society of Never again. That was the call, you know, and it was that call which was pivotal in kind of stabilizing the new institutions surrounding the war. Another key reason, of course, is that by the end of the Second World War, something different had happened. The world had fundamentally changed and we had suddenly, Britain was no longer a global power. Uh, The USA had access to Saudi oil and there was the Soviet Union. There was two superpowers. So because of the context of the cold war again these new they never demobilized that's what happened uh, there was there wasn't a demobilization the the american military stayed mobilized so did russia britain to a certain extent as well because of that condition of the cold war but the cold war conditions were created out of the very conditions of the second world war so the the, the famous idea here is that the bombing of hiroshima was not the final strike of the second world war it was the first strike in the cold war and Mm -hmm. you so you had these this new fundamentally new condition that had emerged from second world war so that's why it stayed after the second and and not the first
0: Mm -hmm. what about the succession of these two wars would that uh, be a a factor that that they happened quite in in a quite a brief time I
1: think so, and that that's what's
0: amazing about
1: when we were looking at these historical accounts is as soon as the war was kind of getting going, you just see planners and politicians instantly revert back to, aha, we recognise this situation. This is what we have to do because of the First World War. So it was almost like uh, the reaction was a lot quicker and they more decisively intervened in policy very quickly. So, for example, the UK, uh, just to take one example, it uh, immediately nationalized oil very soon uh, into into the war. Uh, and that was across the board. They were a lot quicker to act because they'd had that prior experience of, OK, this is what you have to do in the situation of a t-
0: you talked about world wars that sort of uh, intensify unsustainability and how the military intensify, or at least uh, yeah the militaries and their relation to emissions what about local wars and their relationship with unsustainability
1: it's a very good question it's there are other people that are doing work on this so it's important to highlight their work Jack Davies at uh, Utrecht is doing a PhD that's going to be looking a lot more at transitions and conflict and looking at things in a lot more nuanced way than we did in a sense because as you say we were looking at world wars quite exceptional he's looking at uh, conflicts and Mm. I think um, you know it becomes a very interesting and and challenging question when you're looking at uh, local wars I mean there's the issue around sort of Boundaries and at what point is it local? At what point do, do reverberations kind of occur and spill out into the globe? I think you know a real challenge is uh, you know I've read research about looking at, for example, in Yemen. Um, so the uh, uh, the war with, with Saudi Arabia and and how actually what what happened uh, in the first few years of that was an acceleration in people using solar power because energy was regularly being cut off from from centralized um sources and everything like that so people were just a DIY kind of installing solar panels so there's interesting effects that these might have um but then we are the, and there's other things to consider so a war is something that's you know is usually understood as being something officially declared um between two states, usually, but you know, conflicts that rage for decades and so on. You know, I think in many ways, sustainability transitions itself perhaps has the imprints of its founding conditions, in the sense that it was formed in the Netherlands in a consensual democracy at a time of peace. But again, when you're looking at, uh, be it. Uh, Colombia or a, a number of countries you know that have had long-standing issues around paramilitary activity and so on. When you start thinking about sustainability transitions you've got to kind of think about these actors and these long-term processes and there it becomes challenging because the question is is that an exogenous thing still if there has been this situation of conflict in a country that's been going for many decades uh, and fundamentally touches upon everything. Including energy and food and mobility, and these kind of things. So I think once we start looking at local wars and so on again, and 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 conflicts, uh, the picture uh, does become more challenging in the sense uh, that it it kind of is not so clear cut where the boundaries are between exogenous and endogenous, and also uh, it really requires us to to think differently about these these new Uh, Or sorry, these different contexts in which transitions happen. So it's not something I've done a lot of uh, work on. But uh, the other thing, of course, is that uh, we've got to start considering how wars, the sort of the feedback and the interactions between the climate changing and the potential for uh, conflict and issues around uh, resources and these kind of things, which, again, uh, may manifest at sort of the more local level rather than these these grand events. Very interesting.
0: Um, talking about well, still climate change. Actually, um, of course, what come what what may come to mind is that okay, we had this wartime effort, and it's we centralised everything towards one goal, and there are calls for doing the same for climate change to mobilize somehow in a way that is similar to wartime efforts. So, mm. And what, yeah, what is your uh, take on that?
1: Well, I can see the appeal. <laughs> I can see the appeal because it's this lovely idea that if we just had, if we could all unite around this single singleness of purpose, because that, that was the unique thing in the Second World War in particular, in certain countries, it was that people were prepared to share a sacrifice for this singleness of purpose. Nothing mattered except for winning the war. All socio-technical systems were directed towards a singleness of purpose of win the war. That was it. And uh, I can see the appeal for trying to put that to climate change, but there is the grave risks in this, I think, um, of the securitization discourse, because that's what it is. And securitization discourse relies on an external enemy uh, so, here we have an external enemy. What is the external enemy? CO2. Okay, well, where is it coming from? It's not It's not a, a force that's invading. It's something embedded in our very way of life and our uh, environment and our history. It's not something external. It's something to do with us. And it's complicated and it requires serious discussion. And I think... My problem with the securitization, the war against climate change discourse, is that it nullifies discussions of the plural pathways to sustainability. There isn't a single path. Uh, There's going to be divergences. There's going to be uh, different values at play. There's going to be important debates to be had. Take something like uh, nuclear power, for example. The debate can get quite silly, I think, because what people can say is, Climate change is happening and we're all going to die. Therefore, we need to build nuclear power. And people will say, absolutely, because it's, CO- it's low carbon. But that completely misses the nuances of the discussion of, okay, how long does it take to build one? How expensive is it compared to alternatives? What are the other ethical issues surrounding the technology? So it obscures all these very important debates. So what I'm saying is that I can see the appeal of the sort of the war against climate change narrative, but I think actually climate change is something fundamentally different uh, to a war. uh, And also I'm worried from a sort of democratic perspective as to what it does to public debate. Something else just to add quickly is that, of course, what may uh, be tested tragically soon is is as we... experience the the physicality of climate change in terms of bushfires and all these av- terrible weather events and so on that some of them which are attributed to climate change will that kind of spur more action and you know that's yet to be seen yet but we're moving into that territory where the effects are becoming very real it's not just a invisible thing it's here it's physical and people can see it so will that be a a force that uh mobilizes action um as if you were sort of being attacked um uh, it would be interesting to see but we don't know yet i think
0: yeah interesting and terrifying i suppose in some parts of the world at least
1: indeed well the, yes no and it's always important to emphasize that yeah absolutely terrifying and tragic yeah. in many cases so yeah
0: yeah well talking about the nuclear uh, military program um in one of your papers you uh critique the uk nuclear military program i think and my question is couldn't the military nuclear programs in other countries couldn't they actually be allies for proponents of nuclear power as a green quote unquote energy source
1: yeah no and they they are in many ways i mean you know the the the, that's so this is work with andy sterling and what i didn't realize at the time was in many ways we were sort of before this was 2014 15 when we started doing this it was the first research project i was on and we came up with the submarine hypothesis for why the uk was um continuing with nuclear power and that is that it is because the uk needs to sustain uh, the capabilities and skills and supply chains necessary mm-hmm. for building nuclear submarines on which the nuclear weapons depends. So although the discourse is very much it's about climate change, it's about climate change, actually what's driving the policy enthusiasm for it is the military. So in many ways, yeah, you're right. Um, I think the the military are probably proponents of that. And we see that quite directly. So Rolls-Royce, which builds the nuclear reactors for submarines in the UK, It's very much promoting small modular reactors and saying that it will be of benefit to the climate as well. They're also very honest in their 2017 document and say specifically that a key benefit will be to support the nuclear weapons system. Um, So, yeah, um, I, I, I think that is something that is being promoted in the extent to which military organizations kind of promote the... Climate rationale for nuclear is um, is is a good question, really.
0: Um, yeah, so you could also imagine uh, protesters, activists calling to the military for action as well, as well as universities and governments.
1: Indeed, I mean, yes, uh, uh, stranger things have happened, which would be <laughs> an extraordinary turnaround. Because another thing people forget is that the environmental movement essentially emerged out of Uh, opposition to the military industrial complex, if you want to call it that. Mm. So it was in the culmination of the first deep transition, systems had built up, which were very much uh, secretive, uh, anti-democratic in many ways. um, And you had this real tie-in between sort of civil activity and military affairs, certainly in the USA and so on. And the environmental movement was very much started out opposing these centralised civil military systems. And they called for something decentralised, they called for something peaceful. You know, you had these ideas of the soft energy paths, uh, uh, Amory Lovins and other people. Um, So, and that history of the entwinement really of the peace movement and environmental movement has somewhat become forgotten and somewhat the two of them have become separate as the debates on climate change have become arguably more technocratic and so on but i think the world you know we're in a very different world than we were even a few years ago so um the you know the the, the, the need to integrate i think discussions of peace with environment has become more pressing
0: than than ever before really yeah uh, coming back to uh, the, the deep transitions theory, what yes. do you think um what do these local wars or conflicts uh that are currently undergoing in Ukraine, in Gaza, what do you what do they in your opinion, what what do they make for uh, the deep transitions theory? Do they play a, a role theoretically?
1: They do play a role. Um and I think something in the deep transitions that we emphasized investors and we did this with a, a, a project we were doing with investors where they wanted us to look at the climate scenarios that are produced by the esg uh the the climate finance uh, groups um and these scenarios really don't include shocks and they wanted us to include shocks including wars and these kind of things and a message that we try and say, and it, you only need to look at history for to, to validate this, is that the transition is going to involve shocks. And some of those shocks are going to be wars. And it's not going to be a neat linear process. It's going to be interrupted. There's going to be setbacks. There's going to, It's going to be reshaped uh, by conflicts and wars. And even though these things are obviously difficult to predict and they're difficult to predict, um, you know, quantify in many ways uh, ahead of time. Certainly, we need to think about them, and we need to be prepared to respond to them, and have resilient systems that can respond to them. Because that, you know, increasingly so, there are going to be shocks. And if we look at the the wars at, at the moment, you know, it, it and they're tragic, of course. You know, the the picture with the Ukraine war was a very mixed picture in many ways because you had an acceleration of renewables in europe certainly and you had for example germany kind of vastly reducing its dependence on russian gas in a short period of time reducing demand but it, so you had these acceleration towards sustainability argue, arguably caused by this however you also had the building of liquefied natural gas terminals around europe and uh that increasing so it's a complex picture if we look at the tragedy unfolding in, in the Middle East uh, you know there's some analysis that suggests you know that, that uh, part of this uh, is you know the part of the story is, is to do with um, gas fields in uh, off the coast of, of Palestine and so on mm. um, but also what we have to consider is if it you know remember 1973 you know we could have this all over again so if this continues then the oil uh, producing states could switch off the taps and then we're going to see an energy crisis uh, that would probably uh, sort of dwarf the one that that we had uh, last winter as a result of the tragedy in in ukraine so they, these are key examples really of how the evolving multi system uh, transition to sustainability is necessarily uh, going to be influenced by shocks, uh, and indeed, you know something to emphasise is that we're in a different landscape now. So, you know, the landscape category of the MLP really, in a few years, it's changed. So, we've gone from this sort of idea of this global peace uh, you know, obviously that was a very, it was an extremely Western-centric view anyway, but there was, there was, you know, in the 2000s and so on, there was an implicit kind of idea that after the fall of the Berlin Wall and everything, like, you know, it was the end of history. And now we see great geopolitical rivalry. So this, what the USA is doing, for example, with regards to China and its digitalization and AI ambitions is to try and cut off its uh, supply of uh, of microchips and so on, and there's concerns around Taiwan and all these kind of things. So we're seeing another great power um, race, really, in terms of artificial intelligence and these kind of things. So, you know, these factors are going to have a massive role in the directionality of the unfolding transition.
0: What should we study in in, in this <laughs> in this regard? What, for example? <laughs> A PhD student with an open uh, trajectory or a postdoc who is thinking of a project, uh, you have an agenda or key points, key directions in in terms of this topic, war and deep transitions?
1: Yeah. um, Well, it kind of, what, what I'd say is it takes off from where I stopped really. And that is, we looked at world wars, we identified this key idea that shocks do not just interrupt pathways they fundamentally shape them but that remains to be tested with other types of wars i think the imprinting concept is is a very useful framework for examining wars because it actually places attention on what is the dynamics of this war or conflict and really putting them as central focus and then trying to understand how they influence but there's all these events happening around the world uh tragic wars uh, and so on that have not been studied, other types of landscape shocks, be it uh, uh, pandemics, financial crises. There's a whole, I think, research agenda around using the imprinting concept to examine different types of exogenous shocks, uh, whether they have the same mechanisms, whether there's different mechanisms, how they influence uh, sociotechnical systems, the extent to which uh, that the influence they exert lasts over a period of time whether it decays there's all these kind of questions to examine uh i think it's only just getting going really so um that's what i'd recommend is is if, if it was if i <laughs> had the opportunity that's what i do is to take that concept further and to examine um go deeper into examining different types of shocks include including wars
0: it is it is a fascinating uh, uh, concept indeed do you do you yourself work on it, uh, or do you want to maybe talk about briefly some of the things that you are working on now? Or will yeah, great. Yeah, well, comments?
1: well, just a little plug is that me and Johan will have a paper coming out in a special issue, um, which is in uh, the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. There's a number of transition scholars in this special issue, and that paper's on imprinting and shocks. And institutional change but and it does discuss the wars again but it's more bringing together the kind of conceptual the core conceptual insights from this body of work so um that'll be out in a month or so i think so that would be something i'm currently working on finishing off a, a paper on digitalization and the long history of digitalization and within that a core part of the story is again the, what I call the World War II regime so computing um, and the entire industry around semiconductors and microchips and so on absolutely crucially was influenced by this Cold War uh, context and the institutions that were created in the Second World War cybernetics and these military ideas of control and prediction and so on uh, have had a lasting influence I think on Uh, the directionality of of digitalization so hopefully that'll be finished soon and then we're going to be working in the lab with investors uh, running experiments to try and help them understand how they can move their investments towards system change rather than system optimization and within that i do hope to be you know integrating this this work on shocks and everything like that uh but I wish I had more time to examine different cases and all these kind of things. Um,
0: Fascinating! I, yeah. I can relate a lot with this idea of uh, system change, system optimization. We're also doing the same kind of similar thing in in Eindhoven University in education. But that's oh, something. fantastic! Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to chat about it maybe next time yeah. at the IST. <laughs> So, yeah. thank you so much. That's all of my questions, Phil. Um, this has been. Uh, Phil Johnstone at uh, the, the Spru. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. Thanks.